All right, well, good morning, and we're going to turn our attention to God's Word. We're continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, and this morning we find um, ourselves at, at the beginning of chapter 3. Let me just give you a word on Ephesians 3. Um, it is indeed, there is an abrupt uh, start to it, and it, Paul, it's as if Paul started to write something, and, and indeed, I'm going to talk about this in just a second. He, it's like he is starting a prayer in verse 1. He says, I, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and there's this dash. Um, he, this is what he was starting. He was starting a prayer. And if you, if we, we don't see this in your bulletin, but verse 14 starts the same way he started verse 1, for this reason, for this reason. But this dash indicates Paul saying, Actually, I'm not done talking <laughs> about something. And so most of this text focuses on verses 2 through 13. Verse 1 is just kind of, uh, and I think this is very important for us. But I want you to see that. Because there is going to be this abruptness to verse 1 as we go into verse 2. The meat of Ephesians 3 is verse 2, verse 13. So with that being said, let me read God's word. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... Uh, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generation, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am, very, am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. One of the great privileges of being a pastor is that I always have a front row seat at the weddings I preside over. I literally have the best seat in the house, which is center aisle, front and center. Now there's a debate, Kimberly has an opinion as to the best thing to look at when the bride comes into the church. She always wants to look at the groom's face. But I'm telling you, especially for those of you that have been in bridal parties and been near the center aisle, you haven't been in the center aisle, to look at the bride's face when the doors open and to see her face as she eyes her groom. and to see, It is one of the most honored places that I get to be is I get to see her face as she looks at her family and her friends and her groom that she's going to. What a great privilege it is. But one of the other great privileges that I have, especially in light of a wedding season, is that usually when I am asked to marry someone, I always say, happy to marry you, but we're going we're gonna to have a 
chat a little bit. Most of the time, the spouses, I've married some of you in here, happy to do that. And that is even a greater privilege of mine. Not necessarily to see the bride's face, but to actually see the two who are one becoming one themselves. And in the time that I meet with the bride and the groom, or the bride and groom-to-be, we are always talking about intimate things and, and, and things that really matter. And eventually, as a Christian minister, one of the things that I want to do is to paint this picture of what Christian marriage looks like. And the way that I paint this picture or, or present this picture so that we can talk as a pastor to two different people is the way that Paul describes marriage in Ephesians 5. Now, obviously, we're not preaching Ephesians 5, but I'm showing you how Paul presents uh, marriage in light of Christ and his church. And I want to read real quick what we talk about in this setting between bride and groom and pastor. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by her washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The reason why I'm doing this with a couple is that I'm trying to show the husband primarily what does it mean to really love your bride. To really love your bride is to, sh to love the bride as Christ loves the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself for the church. He gave his life up. He sacrificed his life to save the church. The whole idea, this is what I always tell the couple, the whole idea of this covenant of marriage is, is, is right in relation to Christ's covenant with his church because he loves the church. We so often forget just how much Jesus loves the church. We're so often quickly going to how Jesus loves me, and that is true. But Jesus loves the church, and he gave himself for her. Now, we are not called to worship the church but it is vitally important as people of God to love the things that God loves. To love the church. Love the church. But this is oftentimes difficult to do. On February 10th of this year, the Houston Chronicle released an investigative report on the Southern Baptist Church in Texas. And in this report, the Houston Chronicle described the more than 700 victims of abuse over a 20-year period in various churches throughout their state. Regardless of whether some of those cases were fabricated, whatever, the reality is that people have been abused in the church. It can be difficult to love the church. For my Catholic friends, they know this well over the last three years. As seemingly every month, it's one revealing a difficult situation of abuse in the Catholic Church. And then even me, speaking personally, I have a deep affection for the church, but I've also been wounded in the church, and I'm a pastor. And so we find ourselves in this difficult place. How do we love the thing that Jesus loved, yet be so inundated and so crushed oftentimes by the very thing that Christ loved? 
How do we love the church? How do we find relief from this hatred that can so often be in our mind for the church? How do we find relief from this ambiguity of of wanting to love the church but having hesitancy to love the church because we know if we love the church, we're going to open ourselves up for possible hurt? How do we find this relief from this? Well, I think we find relief in Ephesians 3. Like I said, Ephesians 3 begins as a prayer. Paul's saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus, ah, and he stops. He says, no, 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 I'm not done talking about the church. Because in chapter 2, the way he finished chapter 2, he was speaking about the church of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, it's as if he was saying, I'm going to start praying the realities of Ephesians 2 in your life. But he's like, no, I'm not done praying for the church because the church is the most beautiful thing that we have as humans on this earth. Paul's saying, I love the church. And the words that Paul says is indeed flowery. You might even be so confused by what Paul is saying because it's just like one thing after another. It's like, how do I wrap my mind around all that Paul is trying to say in verses 2 through 13? And I'm telling you what he's saying is this, love the church. Love the church. And to to help us love the church, he gives us really three reasons or, or three kind of you know, pillars from which we can define a love for the church, even in spite of the wounds we have from the church, even in spite of some of the difficult PR situations that oftentimes comes to the church. Paul's trying to say, hey, there's three pillars for the love of the church, and I want you to see it. And the first thing that Paul wants to see is in in these verses, as as we develop this love for the church, is he wants us to see the heart of the church, number one. He wants us to see the heart of the church. You know, right at the beginning of Paul's rabbit trail on his musing on the church and, and as he tries to describe this love of it, he says this. He, he gives this example in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5 of the role that God has given him, that Jesus has given him and his purpose. But you get to verse 6 and he says this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So indeed, he says in 1 Corinthians that that the church is the body of Christ. And we see this once again. The, the, The Gentiles are members of the same body. So he's describing the church. And what did he describe about the church? That they're the partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. At the heart of the church, Paul is saying, is the declaration and the implementation of a mystery that has now been understood in and through Jesus Christ. And this mystery is that the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ have now been given to all people. All people are one body through Christ Jesus. Now as a Jew, and more importantly as a Pharisee, Paul had a deep understanding of God's word as it is characterized in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are several characters that kind of form the foundation for our understanding of the Old Testament. And many of you know these characters, characters like Adam and Eve and Noah and Moses and King David. These are just prominent characters. But but perhaps the most prominent of character in the Old Testament that we must wrestle with and understand is the character of Abraham. It it was Abraham that God mysteriously moved to in Genesis 12. It is Abraham that heard these words. Go from your country 
and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is God speaking to Abraham. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him that dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as a Jew, Paul understood deeply how he was connected to these words as he was a direct descendant from Abraham. One of the things that you will see all throughout the Old Testament are these lists of names and of people. You even get it in the, the Gospel of Matthew. And they're tracing back their lineage to Abraham. That through Abraham, the blessing of God would come. Through Abraham, they hear the words, I will be your God and you will be my people. When, when Moses stood before the burning bush, what did God say to him who he was? I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are a direct descendant of Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. And as a Jew, Paul understood deeply and he understood that the promises of God are to the people who are descendants of Abraham. But what Paul didn't understand is that last phrase in Genesis 12, 3. Through you, all the nations of Israel will be, or through, all, through you, all the nations will be blessed. He didn't understand that the blessing of God would go to those outside of Abraham. You got to understand, Paul was a person who, who hated Gentiles. Like, he wasn't even allowed to eat with Gentiles. Jews were the ones that he was with. He was so hatred of it. But when he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, his world was turned upside down. And this character named Jesus was introduced to him. And when he met Jesus, he was, it, it was revealed to him that Jesus was going to all the nations. That Jesus was bringing salvation to all. This is what he says in verse 3. How the, revel, how, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. And he says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You see, he understands how the promises of God that have gone throughout history to the Jews is now through Jesus Christ, not only going to the Jews, but it is going to the Gentiles as well. And how in the world is this possible? How can the promises of God go, go to both Jews, who are descendants of Abraham, and Gentiles, who are not? It is through faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to understand Paul's understanding of theology. If you want to understand the big picture of all that Paul writes about, about God and relationship with God, it is this mystery that has been revealed to him. You have to see how, how crazy it is in his mind as a hater, hater of Gentiles that now Gentiles are in. This is the heart of it, the heart of his theology. And, and, and he writes this in Galatians 3, because he's talking about this all the time. This is what he writes in Galatians 3, about this Gentiles being grafted in. This is how, what he says. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then here's what he says. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's Galatians 3.13. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles through faith. Romans 4 is all about righteousness coming by faith. Abraham, this, and how the blessing of God and the promise of God to be God of all nations through faith. And this is at the heart of the church. The proclamation of Jews and Gentiles coming together, that Gentiles indeed receive the very promises of God, the promises that God will be their God, and, he, and, he, and those people will be his people. Not, I will be your God and you will be my person. I will be your God and you will be my people, both Jews and Gentiles. It is the church where the place where the promises of God's forgiveness dwells, where we can say, as far as the east is from the west, so far is your transgression removed from you. It is the church that has this at its heart. It is the church that proclaims this. It is the church that has the promises of God, both Jew and and Gentile. A friend of mine recently adopted a, a teenager who has spent a large portion of his life in foster cares and in an abusive family. And the abandonment that he experienced both from his family and being passed around from foster care family to foster care family has had a significant impact on this boy's life. But now he has a family. Now he's a part of a family and nothing can change that. The law of America said, this is your son. You take his name. But the son is struggling to believe it. He's struggling to believe that he's a part of the family. And one of the things that happened most recently was that he came home and he had a jar of money on his, uh, on his dresser, you know, 10, 15 bucks. And he came home and the jar had been emptied. And he asked his wife, did you take the money? Like, I'm just curious. And she said, no. And he immediately knew that it was his adopted son who had taken the money. And so he had to confront his son, why'd you steal the money? And the son said, oh, I didn't, I didn't steal the money. I didn't, I didn't do this. And this awesome dad looked at him and said, all that I have is yours. Just ask me. Just ask me and I'll give you the money. You don't need to steal it. You're my son. You're my son. This is what Paul, if he would just come here today and look at us, we're all Gentiles. And he would say to us, the promises of God are yours. God is yours. And you are his. And he is yours. This is an amazing thing. Why aren't you taking hold of the promises of God? He is your God. He will take care of you. He will provide for you. Why do you have to look to yourself as if you're an orphan? No, as a Gentile, you are not an orphan. You are a son. You are a daughter. And the promises of God are yours. It's a difficult thing to lean on the promises of God which are ours in Christ. We're so tempted to look to ourselves and to to battle the doubt on our own strength. But the truth of the matter is, we are His. And the promises of God that are pronounced all throughout Scripture are ours. And all we need to do is to trust them and look to them and walk in them.
I mean, this is at the heart of the church. The promises are for the church. You want to know why Paul loves the church too much? It's because this inclusive body of Jews and Gentiles now have the promise of God. And it is at our heart. If we neglect the church, we neglect the very promises of God. That's why Paul loves the church. Because the church that holds the promise of God. Do you love the church? Well, I want you to because at the heart of the church is the promise of God. But, but there's more. There's more to develop this love of the church. There's a lot of highlights in the church. So the second thing I want you to see that Paul brings about, especially in light of his love of the church, is the highlight of the church. In verse 7, Paul says this, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And notice this, this is the point of the church. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I want you to see this. Paul is highlighting the wisdom of God in the life of the church. And he says the wisdom of God in the light of the church, it so amazes the rulers and the, and, and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, that sounds strange, but simply, those are like angelic forces. Those are just angelic beings who have always looked, God, what are you doing? You know, we're for you, but what are you doing with all these things? Why are you climbing up on a cross and dying for sins? What are you doing? And Paul is saying, you want to see people wowed? Look at the church. Because the church is one highlight reel after another. And we see this, and Paul understands this in his own life. You see, even before verse 10, he's talking about his own self. I am the very least of all the saints, but this grace was given to me. If you're unfamiliar with Paul's life, I've already alluded to a bit of it, but he was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians. He despised how it seemed to push all on Jewish religion and practice, and he was literally killing Christians. That was his job. And on his way to the city of Damascus in modern-day Syria, the same city, on his way to Damascus to kill more Christians, Jesus showed up. And when Jesus showed up in his life, his life was transformed. He went into Damascus, and they were afraid of him. But he wasn't seeking to kill Christians anymore. Because he had received the grace from Jesus. Because his, his standing with God was not based on his own obedience, but it was based on the obedience of Christ, which was given to him as a gift. And it was this person, this persecutor of the church, who became the very person that we're reading about today. A person who at one time was a murderer, who is now the, probably the biggest pillar of the Christian church today. And he wants you to see this. The greatest highlight of the church is God's grace going to broken people. 
And that grace going into broken, sinful people and using those broken and sinful people to amaze the rulers and authorities. It's God's wisdom to take the least, the broken, and the worst and make them such as a person so that they're the ones that are doing the will of God to where the angels go, I mean, I knew that person, but oh my goodness, look at what they're doing now. To take broken and sinful people and use them as bright lights in awesome characters in the life of the church. God changes the world and transforms his world through his grace, through broken people. 20 years ago, a man named Michael Beck worked as a bar bartender in central London. And while working as a bartender, he developed a terrible addiction to cocaine and hit rock bottom. And like many addicts, he sought to get out of this lifestyle, and he thought he would do this by moving back to his native South Africa. But unfortunately, his habits didn't leave him when he moved home. And after getting high one night, he overheard a TV preacher in the other room of his house. And with nothing to do, he thought he would sit before this TV and watch the preacher so that he could mock the words coming out of his mouth. But God had a different plan for Michael Beck. The words of the preacher he did not find to be um, mock-worthy. But the words from that preacher cut right to his heart. And while he was strung out on drugs, he gave his life to Jesus. He was still working in the entertainment industry at the time, but he began to share his faith with those he encountered in the bars. And this eventually led to becoming a pastor himself. And now Michael Beck, who used to be addicted to cocaine and strung out in that ways, is now a pastor and a church planner in the city in, in New Zealand. I say that because God has a way by his grace of highlighting his wisdom through the broken and through the needy. He did it in Paul. He did it in Michael Beck. What about in you? God wants to use you and highlight his wisdom through his grace in you. But you might say, yeah, but I don't, I'm, not, I'm not addicted to cocaine. How could God use me? I'm clean. I don't even have a story like that. To which I say, exactly. God uses the most mundane, basic things to highlight His grace. Because we are saved by grace, not obedience. And oftentimes the people who are most obedient are the ones that are most difficult accepting His gift of grace. So my friends, the church highlights God's grace by taking broken people and making them the displays of God's wisdom that even amazes the heavenly places. We've got to see this if we want to have a love for the church. We've got to see that God wants to use broken and sinful people to highlight his wisdom. So we've got to see the heart of the church. We've got to see the highlight of the church. But lastly, we've got to see the hope of the church. I want to draw your attention primarily to verse 13. Paul says this, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The, the hope of the church is the glory that is to come to the church. And what indeed is the glory that is to come to the church? 
the book of Revelation, verse, or chapter 21, verses 2 through 5, starts to get at this glory. This is what John the Apostle says of this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What is the glory of the church? It is to be with God himself. Where there will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. There will be no more abuse. We will be with God. And he with us. This is the glory of the church. I want to go there. Do you? Indeed, this is what we profess about the church. But there's a reality that I want to, to highlight before we get to the glory. And that's the highlight of Paul's suffering. Indeed, Paul says in verse 13, Don't lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is glory. And I want you to see the role of suffering which precedes glory. In verse 1 he says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul was literally a prisoner of Rome in a house, but he didn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. He saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus, suffering for the cause of Christ. And he saw his chains to Rome actually as chains from Jesus himself. And he saw his suffering as feeding the church and preparing it for glory. There is a suffering that precedes the glory that is to come. And that is the reality of the church that we will suffer. And this is hard for us sometimes to deal with. I mean, tomorrow morning my alarm's going to go off at 5.45 a.m. And at that time I will take a drink of water because I've had this happen before. I've not drank water and passed out when I started to work out. I will then put on some athletic shoes and some tennis shoes and head to my first ever, it's like a D1 workout. It's a CrossFit workout tomorrow morning. I'm going to my first one ever. And in truth, I don't know all the details that it's going to unfold. But what I gather is that this intense training leads to sickness oftentimes. And without question, the rest of tomorrow will probably be shot with sore muscles and a very large appetite. You may be wondering, why am I doing it? Why in the world am I about to put myself through all this pain and suffering? I mean, first off, I look good. I mean, so you're like, why? Why would you do that? You no, know, I've been asking myself the same thing. Why would I suffer? Well, it's for the glory of a healthy body. It's for the glory that a healthy body could bring to me. How in suffering through this intense workout, I actually might find more life throughout the day. That I might have a longer life as a result of it. You see, suffering precedes glory. And Paul understood in the life of the church that suffering comes before glory. We're going to glory, but we as a church are going to suffer. 
And would we, like Paul, realize that suffering is a part of our calling as a church? See, when we love the church, we will willingly suffer for its glory. We know what's coming. We know the hope is coming. But we will suffer. We'll give sacrificially so that the church can grow in its influence and mission. We risk rejection of friends and family by talking to them about our faith and our salvation and our beliefs. We hold fast to biblical truth even when the world around us thinks it's illogical and ignorant to do so. We hold fast. We suffer because suffering precedes glory. The hope of the church is the glory that is to come. But we must suffer like Paul before we get there. But it is the suffering in light of the glory, in light of the hope that is to come, that enables us to endure like Paul. I love this quote from Dorothy Day. Uh, she was a writer in mid-20th centuries. This is what she said. As to the church, where else shall we go? Except to the bride of Christ, one flesh with Christ. Though she is a harlot at times, she is our mother. My friends, do you love your mother even though she wasn't perfect? It's the same thing with the church. Love the church. She has her faults, but at the heart of the church are the promises of God. And the church highlights the wisdom of God as His grace goes to the least of these, highlighting how good He is, highlighting how powerful He is. And the church is where the hope of glory is. My friends, love the church. It is our hope. It's a great highlight. And at its heart are beautiful, beautiful truths. Love the church. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we do indeed give you thanks for the church. I'm sure most of us in this room do have wonderful stories of how you have worked in their life through the church. And indeed, I want to celebrate the many times, even in my own life, of how the church has been an incredible blessing to me. And yet, sometimes the church has been difficult. Sometimes the church has been maddening. But you've not called us to give up on the church. You've not called us to to run from it or to seek our own way. No, you've called us to love the church as you have loved the church. And so I ask that you'd be with our church here, that indeed we would hold dear the promises that you have given to your church, that we would be one highlight reel of another, of your power and your grace, and that indeed we would work to the glory that is to come for us. Help us, Lord, Unite us, bring us together, that we might be one church, bringing glory to your name. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.